0: Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for the gospel, we praise you for the Jesus that it uh, professes and proclaims, and we now receive Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his might. May we hold nothing back as he comes to us, just as he did on that day when he came to Jerusalem. May we receive him with shouts of joy and praise and welcome him into our hearts, our homes, our lives, our church, our work. Our enjoyments. May He reign over everything as King. So, Father, cause us now by Your Holy Spirit to submit to You in all things as we hear Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. People of God, I'm sure you are all well familiar with the invasion of Normandy by the Allied forces on uh, June 6, 1944. We know we know the story about uh, about the. Uh, Uh, the liberation of France and the the great allied uh, affront on the Axis powers on the German occupied territory. But not many of us know that on one beach at Normandy, the invasion was led by a bagpiper wearing a kilt. Uh, It's a fascinating story. He was a Scotsman named Bill Millen. And when he leapt off the landing ramp into the water at Normandy Beach, he would have appeared to be unarmed by everybody who uh, who saw him that day. Uh, he wasn't carrying a rifle, no, but he did have a weapon. He had his bagpipes, which when he leapt into the water, he had to hold high over his head as bullets were flying around him. And he tries to make his way to the beach and gets his feet on dry ground. It, the, the, the pipes, the bagpipes, historically led Scotsmen into battle. Uh, a piper in the Scottish army was considered to be a, a fighting man like, like all the rest. His music was his, his weapon, which struck fear into the hearts of his enemies and, and strengthened the hearts and the minds of his, his comrades. So when Bill Millen's brigade made it onto the beach, again with shells exploding on every side and bullets flying through the air, his commanding officer gave him the order, give us a tune, Piper. I won't even try the uh, Scottish accent, but he said, give us a tune, Piper. And so uh, Bill started playing Highland Laddie and the officer gave the thumbs up and then commenced the progress uh, up the beach. Uh, And so Bill marched up and down Normandy Beach, wearing a kilt, playing the bagpipes, uh, playing traditional Scottish tunes while there was death and detonation all around. His piping didn't stop there when the brigade advanced uh, beyond the shore, he kept playing with, with his brigade uh, along the road, through villages. Occasionally, there would be a sniper. Everybody would duck down, the music would stop, and as soon as the sniper was dispatched, they'd all get back up again and he'd crank it up again. Da, 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 and they would march on through uh, France. Uh, after the war, he found out that many times in those first couple of days, German snipers had him in their sights but he, uh, he found out they didn't shoot him, they didn't pull the trigger because they thought he was crazy. They thought he was a madman and they spared his life. They took pity on him and said, who would, who would come into this, this uh, scene wearing that and playing that? Who would do this? I love little bits of history like this and, and I read this this past week, <clears throat> but what I love most is that in one sense, France was liberated by an army led by music. Nobody would take a bagpiper seriously on a field of battle. Today, certainly not a modern field of battle. No one would think, yeah, obviously that's what we need. We need a guy in a kilt. You know, it's like, what what do we need to go deer hunting? I don't know, a guy with an accordion. That's what we need. That's, That's exactly what we need. No, here we need a guy in a kilt playing bagpipes, but that's exactly what they needed. And here was a successful, yet unconventional, unexpected kind of invasion. And when I read that this week, of course, I thought immediately to our gospel text this morning, because here is another unconventional, unexpected invasion in our gospel reading. It looks like when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's being thrown kind of a ticker tape parade, the kind of parade that they would throw for Caesar when he came back from some great victory. It's, it's a, a great celebration. And that's what it looks like, but in fact... What we see here, what's happening when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's not, a, it's not a great celebration. It's actually what's going on, though there is celebration, it, there is, a, it is an invasion. This is the beginning of, of Jesus' work in the city of Jerusalem to conquer the city, to put to death the old world and institute the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Jesus comes for battle. And that's not what everybody, not everybody realizes why he is here and what he is doing. He comes, though, as a conquering king, taking the city. He comes to liberate the captives, to overthrow the occupying tyrants. But here's what's even more amazing. He doesn't come riding on a chariot pulled by a team of white stallions. He doesn't come on a mighty war horse. He doesn't come with a herd of war elephants, the way that Hannibal came into the uh, uh, Italian peninsula just about 200 years before this. He doesn't come with any kind of show of strength. He, He doesn't wear a suit of armor. Jesus isn't armed with a sword. He comes unarmed into the city riding a borrowed colt of a donkey, one that had never been ridden before. Animals that have never been ridden before, obviously, aren't used to riders. They don't have the grace and the the temperament to be sat upon. And yet, this one does exactly what the master wants him to do. This is not an impressive animal, though. This is the point. This scene, what Jesus does, does nothing to convey strength or might, or power, if you're defining those things in a worldly sense. Sort of the way that a a Scotsman and a bagpipes looks funny on the beach at Normandy. This, This is a similar scene. This doesn't look like he's doing anything aggressive here. Except for those who are really paying attention. I quoted Psalm 123 last, last week where the eyes of the maid looks to the hands of her mistress. Uh, and, and, as, and as the eyes of the maid looks to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God. So that uh, those who are paying attention, those who are watching for those subtle things, there are those who know the prophets. And they know that Jesus is taking on here a very specific prophecy about Messiah from the writing of the prophet Zechariah. Matthew quotes a piece of it for us here so that we don't miss it. He quotes Zechariah for us that when Messiah comes, we read, He'll come riding on the foal of a donkey. And so there are people in the city who put this together and say, Oh, yeah, this is what's going on. And when word spreads and people catch on, excitement fills the city, a city that's already swollen with people because they're here to celebrate the Passover. They they're here, and any little thing can get them excited, and and here this wonderful thing is happening, and so they cut down palm branches, which is a, a, a national symbol, for for Israel. They wave them like they did when the Maccabees came back from their great victory over the Seleucids. They greet Jesus as if he's a returning. War hero, but his work is just beginning. They throw their clothes on the road. Of course, anytime you see somebody throwing their clothes on the road, you think instantly of you know Sir Walter Raleigh, right? When you know when he did that for Queen Elizabeth. Remember, he's Walter Raleigh was walking with the king and the queen, and they came to a big uh, muddy place in the road, and Sir Walter Raleigh takes off his great cloak and he places it over the muddy spot so that the queen can walk. Uh, across without getting her royal feet muddy, uh, and she can uh, uh, be spared that indecency. But but letting somebody walk over the back of your cloak, letting somebody walk on your clothes, especially if it's the only cloak you had. If these people would not have had a closet full of you know uh, a winter jacket, a spring jacket, and a light blazer, and you know they, they wouldn't have had all this. If if you have a coat, that's a pretty expensive thing. You have one. And they throw it on the ground in front of Jesus riding on this, uh, on this donkey. Doing this is a way of saying, I submit everything I have to you. I give everything to you. I, I want you to, to be as comfortable and as, and as happy as possible. If there's anything else you need, I would do that too. I give everything I have to esteem you and to honor you. This is a powerful self-sacrificial gesture. And that's just what the people are doing for Jesus. They're saying, you ride over us. You know, we're gonna throw our cloaks on the road ahead of you, but, but actually you're riding over the top of us. You are, you are enthroned on our, on our praises. You ride into the city on our backs. You are enthroned on our adoration for you. So, so they wave palm branches. They throw their cloaks on the road in front of him. And then they sing Psalm 118, which we read together this morning, which says in part, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, this, uh, while we're talking about the son of David and, and they bring up the son of David, it's good to skip back and to think about when David entered the city of Jerusalem. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem much in the way that David conquered the city and entered it. Triumphantly, we heard that story read. Tim read it for us from Second Samuel five this morning. Um, and if we could get some context for what's going on there, uh, these these events when when David conquered the city of Jerusalem, it was soon after the death of of um, Saul and the effort to wrap things up with the house of Saul. You will remember, not everybody was excited about David's kingship right from the start. In fact, he had quite a bit of of resistance. Um, Israel was fractured. There were some who expected one of Saul's house to become the next king. Members of Saul's family and, and his military commanders were not really open to accepting David as king. But after a great deal of fighting and by a great deal of compassionate diplomacy on David's part, toward the survivors of Saul's family, David was able finally to unite Israel. And then after David unites Israel, his first act as king over all Israel was to conquer the old Jebusite city of Jerusalem. This this is something that should have happened generations before. The Jebusites are one of the Canaanite tribes that are listed over and over and over that, that Joshua and that generation were supposed to conquer in the land of Canaan. God told his people to remove these people from Canaan, but as the tribes came in and they took occupation of the land, they got complacent and they got lazy And once they received their allotments of land, they didn't finish the work. They didn't finish conquering everything. So there's this big fortress of Jebusites right in the middle of the land that God has given them. So when David comes and unites Israel, first order of business, conquer Jerusalem. Take out that city and remove the Jebusites from the land. So as you heard in our reading, When David and his army approached the city of Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem says, you can't come in here. You'll never defeat this city. In fact, I'm gonna put the blind men, I'm gonna put the lame men on the walls to defend you. That's how confident I am that you're not going to take this city. Well, uh, he was proven to be wrong. David says, um, you know what, Uh, I've got a different plan. Uh, we're not even going to need to fight the lame. We're not going to need to fight the blind. Um, what we're going to do is go in a different way. Even the strongest city needs water. It needs a water supply. And so David says, the man who climbs up the the, the water supply, the man who leads the city, climbs through the water shaft into the, into the city, who leads the army into the city, the man who leads that attack will be my chief and my captain. So uh, They go in that way, and every once in a while, and I say this as reverently as I can, every once in a while, I get a little bit frustrated that we don't have more details. Because all that happens is, we read that Joab took some men into the city, and then then the next verse, David is dwelling there in peace. I want to know what happened. I need like a Mission Impossible kind of uh, a montage of what exactly, and how all that, I want to know how many guys got, you know, stabbed. I want to know all this stuff, and how this happened. But, it's the... uh, it's the economy of the Holy Spirit's language where he says, yeah, Joab lets men in there. And the next verse, Joab's just, uh, I'm sorry, David is, is dwelling in the city. David's dwelling safely in the city. It just happens like that. They go in, they take the city, and David makes Jerusalem the new capital. There's an odd statement. You heard it this morning if you were listening. That odd statement, David's soul hated the lame and the blind, and he forbade them entrance into this house. Now, we know that David didn't hate the disabled. How do we know that? Well, because he takes care of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. He shows him incredible compassion. He sets Mephibosheth over, over, over everything. He makes him a, 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 an equal and a ruler. Mephibosheth is the lame son of Jonathan, his friend. And, uh, and, and so David shows great compassion. We know David doesn't hate the lame and the blind. So, so what's that little phrase about? Uh, what he's doing is he's responding to and accepting what the Jebusites call themselves. The Jebusite says, you know, we're lame and we're blind and we can still beat you. If they're lame and they're blind, David says, then, then I'm an enemy of the lame and the blind. I'm not gonna make any exceptions. I'm gonna finish the conquest that should have been completed way back with Joshua's generation. But, but hold on to that, hold on to that thought real uh, quick and, and we'll, we'll come back to that. So after establishing Jerusalem as his capital, David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of of Jerusalem. Now, ever since the days of Eli, remember, the Ark of the Covenant had been separated from the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant went to the Philistines for a while because the Israelite army brought the Ark of the Covenant out as kind of a... Good luck charm. You know, we can't be defeated as long as we have this with us. Well, they were defeated because they weren't being faithful, and the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their trophy house in the uh, uh, Temple of Dagon. Of course, the, 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 the Ark comes back, but it never gets reunited with the Tabernacle. Until David brings the Ark of the Covenant, which has been at somebody's house for the last generation. David brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. David wants to establish a permanent house for God. It's it's not going to be David who builds the house. It's going to be Solomon, his son, who builds the temple. But yet David victoriously processes into the city of Jerusalem ahead of the Ark whirling and dancing and leaping before the Lord. He gets into the city after this big parade into the city. He makes offerings to Yahweh and he feeds the whole multitude gathered in the city. He gives them bread, he gives them meat, he gives them raisin cakes. That's in 2 uh, Samuel 6, rather. So now that, that David has brought the ark into this Jebusite fortress, into this Canaanite fortress of Jerusalem, Now, finally, the land is at rest. Now, finally, the land has been conquered. These many years after uh, Joshua's work, now the conquest of the land is complete and the worship of Yahweh is centralized in in Jerusalem. And so it's a matter of great rejoicing. It's a matter of a great uh, celebration. But whenever you have someone this happy, whenever there's someone having too much fun There's always going to be someone there to shut it down. Uh, You can count on it. There's going to be a little storm cloud of disapproval. Uh, Of course, there's going to be. Why? Because Satan wants you to be self-conscious. Satan wants you to feel weird about being happy. He wants you to feel shameful about eating and drinking, feasting and thanksgiving. He wants you to feel guilty about that. He wants you to sing quietly. Don't sing loudly, especially not in worship. My goodness, you can sing in your car, but don't sing boldly in worship. That's not, Satan hates that. He hates it. That's why you need to whisper the Psalms. That's, that's why when we sing, especially you young men and teenage boys, that's why you need to just sing, holy, holy, holy. I don't want, I don't want to hear you sing. Why? Well, Satan hates it, right? Oh, obviously, I'm being facetious. Obviously, I'm, I'm saying the opposite. Satan wants you to sing quietly, not too boldly. He doesn't want you to think that anybody actually believes what you're singing. Don't get carried away. Don't get too excited. Calm down, you know. Don't, don't get too wound up about this. And, and this, this is obviously uh, Satan's strategy. He wants to tone it down. And so in David's case, playing the role of Satan was his wife, Michael. was Saul's daughter, right? She accuses David of indecency and impropriety. when, When he gets into the city, when he gets home, Michael, his wife says, you ain't acting like a king. You are shameful. You are despicable. You are ridiculous dancing that way in front of the ark, coming into the city. You aren't acting like a king. You certainly aren't acting like my daddy. Remember her father was Saul. You know, Daddy was always grumpy and he was always hateful and he was chucking spears at people's heads. Remember that, but at least he looked like a king. He behaved like a king. You're out there dancing and leading a parade of people, making fool of yourself. That's not very kingly. That's not what we need. You look ridiculous. that was that was Michael's curse on David and then and then God uh, punished Michael uh, in response to her. Uh, to her accusations now hold on to that and fast forward back to Jesus's day and what do you have when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem riding the colt of a donkey as the people are singing hosanna and waving palm branches and throwing clothes on the on the road in front of Jesus you have little black rain clouds you have the pharisees who rain on the parade when they hear and they see the rejoicing of the people the singing of the messianic psalms. They're, they're put out by all this. Jesus looks ridiculous, they think. A grown man on a little donkey. This is, this is not right. This is not what we want to see. So in Luke's gospel, we read from Matthew, but in Luke's gospel is that, that uh, well-known statement where they say, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples in other words, they're saying, Rabbi, get your people under control. And Jesus replies, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, what, uh, what stones are, is Jesus talking about? Uh, is he talking about the rocks laying around on the dirt? Or is he talking about the stones of the city, the stones of the temple? There's a little reference back in Habakkuk 2. I'm going to go back to Habakkuk and then in a few minutes, I'm going to go back to Jeremiah. And the reason that I'm doing this is because I want you to see, as Matthew did for us in quoting Zechariah, I just want you to see always how deeply and densely layered the story of Jesus is. Jesus is not some uh, crazy uh, eccentric teacher who just pops onto the scene and does some amazing things and then dies cruelly and and then he's a mystery about what happened. The story of Jesus starts all the way back in the garden. And we see it layering and growing. That's why we go back and read these things. So back in Habakkuk um, 2, you you hear this. This is in, in the prophet Habakkuk's woes against the people. He says, Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Well, what's the house that Jesus is talking about? What is the house that Habakkuk is talking about? Well, obviously it's the house of the Lord. And when praise is corrupted, when the people are corrupted and idolatrous, Habakkuk says the you're going to stop singing the Psalms and you're going to you're going to stop reading them back and forth to each other I tell you what's going to happen the stones of the temple are going to testify against you they're going to cry out and the timbers of the ceiling are going to respond that's what that's what Habakkuk says back there so what's Jesus saying when he says if I tell these people to be quiet the stones are going to cry out the stones are going to praise me he's not talking about rocks in the dirt He's talking about the stones of the city. He's talking about the stones of the temple, of the house of the Lord. So back in Psalm 118, which we read together this morning, there's this call and response. Uh, The people are singing this. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And there's a response in Psalm 118. The house of Yahweh is supposed to respond to that. The servants from the house of Yahweh, this is what they're supposed to say from Psalm 118, we have blessed you from the, Psalm, uh, from the house of Yahweh. Let me do that again. The people have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the house, the servants of the house are to say, we have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. Is that what happened here? No. The people have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they wait for the response. From the house of Yahweh. And what do they get? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what do they get? Shut up. That's what they get. (laughs) They say, no, no, wait, you you, you must have misheard us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yahweh is coming to his house. No, shut up. That's the response they get. And so Jesus says, no, uh, you, you do that. And this house is going to sing out. This house is going to testify to me. And how does it do that? How does the house testify? Well, at the crucifixion of Jesus, the temple veil is torn. The rocks are broken. And then within a generation, the whole thing is in rubble. Because, because of the faithlessness of the people, uh, the house is destroyed. The house does testify. The house does vindicate who Jesus is. Jesus is about to go take care of that house, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's the the living stones of the house are failing to echo the praise of Yahweh. So for now, the children of Israel are the true living stones of the living temple. And if they fail, then the stones of the city and the temple will testify to who Jesus is. So, So just like Michael despised David's exuberance, so the Pharisees despise the exuberance of Jesus and his disciples. In Matthew's gospel, we get a few more statements of disapproval. The critics say, who is this guy? Why are you making such a big deal over him? And the multitudes respond, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Come on, haven't you been paying attention? Haven't you been awake? How, 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 where have you been? And after that, Matthew says the Pharisees were indignant and and, uh, they say to Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying? How can you let this go on? And Jesus says, he preaches Psalm 8 to them. Jesus says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Uh, Jesus said before, if anyone prevents one of these little ones from coming to me, it's better than have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown in the deepest part of the sea. You don't want to mess with the children Of Yahweh. You don't want to mess with His disciples. So, both the babes, the babies, and the nursing infants, and those whose faith are like children, these are praising Him. And you better not tell them to shut up. You better not stop them. You better not prevent them. This is why I will always insist that children are in worship with us. This is why I will always insist that you bring your little ones to worship. And that we don't shuffle them off somewhere with some, you know, playgrounds and pizza, whatever, while we do the real business of worship. You know, they go play. Why? It's It's because Jesus insists on the little ones sharing in the praise of his Father. One of my friends recently said, every time a baby cries in church, a devil loses his wings. I like that. Every time a baby cries in church, again... Satan hates for you to sing. Satan hates for you to mean it. Satan hates to hear the little ones, why? Because they're being discipled. They're being taught how to worship, which is something that Satan despises. He hates that. And so Jesus, however, he he pushes off the accusers and says, no, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Even the cries of covenant children are a testimony to the mercies of the Lord. And the message is clear. How is Jesus answering the Pharisees here? Jesus is saying, guys, how is it that the babies know what, what's going on and you don't? How is it that the stones could cry out this praise, this thing, and you can't? Babies know, rocks know, and you don't? Is this, is this what you're telling me? You don't see what's happening? All of creation is rejoicing over this, but you're not. What's wrong with you? Here's what's wrong with them. They're idolaters. How do we know that? What happens to idolaters? Idolaters become like their idols. You become like the gods you worship. And so when you worship idols, you become deaf and blind and dumb and lame. That's, That's what you become. You become like them. And so they're blind and they're dumb and they're deaf and they can't see what's going on. Good news though. Jesus is here to deliver them too. So Jesus goes into the temple, just as David wanted to establish worship in the heart of the city he conquered. So, so just as David set the ark in the center of the city, now Jesus comes to the temple and fulfills the words of another prophet. I said I was gonna go back to Jeremiah. Hear, hear this. Um, and I didn't read this section. Better, uh, better, better read first what, what Jesus does in, uh, in Matthew 21. Um, So uh, right after we stopped our gospel reading this morning, verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And what Jesus is referring to there is a curse and a a promise of judgment from Jeremiah, way back in Jeremiah uh, 7. Jeremiah 7, I'll start in verse three. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between man and his neighbor, If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, Burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know. And then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says Yahweh. But go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says Yahweh, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking to you, But you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done in Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole, whole posterity of Ephraim. What he's done before, he's about to do again. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, they've turned the temple of of God into a den of thieves. Jesus' act here in turning over some tables and, and running out some money changers is that he's stopping the activity of the temple. He's stopping the routine and the business of the temple. And this is a warning that what Jeremiah said, the curse and the warning of Jeremiah is about to come true The work and the business of the temple is about to stop permanently. The whole thing's about to be destroyed. So what Jesus is judging here when he comes into the temple is not some economic exploitation simply. It really was a good thing that you could go buy doves at the temple. If you're coming from a long way and you need to make a sacrifice, you can't, it's hard to keep animals with you that whole way. So it's good that you could buy doves there. It's good if you had some Uh, Roman coinage that had been, uh, you know, it was only about, what, 70% silver at that point. You could change it for the temple coinage, which was much, much purer silver, so that you could pay your temple tax. It it was good to be able to to do these things um, so that you could give God something that wasn't worthless, so you could pay your tithe. Uh, But, But what Jesus does here is not simply make a pronouncement of whatever abuses might have been going on there. He's stopping the routine and the daily activity of the temple. And he uses the word thieves here that word might be better translated revolutionaries because the temple is no longer a house of prayer for all nations. It's become a den of conspirators looking to overthrow the Roman government. The temple's just a nationalistic symbol for many at this point, just as Jeremiah warned. He says, don't come before me saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The the temple's like this talisman. It's like this, this, uh, uh, this good luck charm. They think, you know, as long as the temple stands... God is okay with us, and we can do whatever we want. Just as long as the temple is there, we can get away with anything. And that means God is fine with us. We're guaranteed that our way of life will continue, and that we will be preserved against the influence of paganism. God is obligated to protect us from our enemies. And they couldn't have been more wrong, (laughs) but it's sort of like Americans treat the church. It's sort of like, you know, just as long as the church is there, I can go on Easter. I can go on Christmas. I may go one or other time. You know, just as long as the church is there, God still loves us. He's okay. God bless the USA. It's all right. It's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. And I can live however I want. And the church will always be there. I can always go back and be forgiven. That's it. That's fine. Well, no. No. And this is Jesus' judgment on this kind of thinking and on this kind of living. What Jesus begins here when he goes into the temple is not just a cleansing of the temple. This is the first foretaste of the destruction of the temple. This is just an appetizer for what's coming. A new temple has to be built because this old temple is corrupt. So just like his father David, Jesus enters the city takes it over, and immediately begins the work of establishing true worship there. Not by building a new stone temple, but by building a living temple, a temple of living stones where he is the chief cornerstone. Now, quickly, and to to work toward a conclusion here, one more thing that Jesus does at the temple is that he heals the lame and the blind. Remember, the lame and the blind factored into into, uh, David's story The blind and the lame were enemies and they were manipulated into mocking David's army. But when the greater David comes, when Jesus comes, those who have been scorned and marginalized and manipulated and pushed to the periphery, these blind and lame are now by Jesus set down in the middle and granted acceptance and granted healing and granted restoration. The people who were not welcome are now the guests of honor. And now Jesus is, Just as his father David, David goes into the city. He uh, sacrifices there. He offers an offering to Yahweh and he feeds the people. So now Jesus will offer himself as an offering and his body and blood are this feast for for his people. Uh, There's so many parallels that David's conquest of Jerusalem looks so much like Jesus's conquest of Jerusalem. Jesus is the greater David who takes not only the city but the whole world, conquers it in love. To reign over it. Now, no, no preacher on Palm Sunday, and I can guarantee you 98.6% of all pastors today uh, will, will mention that the same crowd that said, Hosanna on this day, on one other day very shortly will say, crucify him. And so what, what gives? Why do they say Hosanna today and crucify him another day? And one, one reason that we keep coming back to this year after year is there's an important emphasis here. The reason that we keep coming back to this event in the church calendar and remembering the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is because, um, well, there are a few things. Not, not Not only does it tell us that people are fickle and they don't know what they want, not only does it tell us that the majority is not always correct, but it also underscores for us how people thought they wanted Jesus, how they thought they wanted their Messiah to come now in this man until it became obvious to them that Jesus was not going to fit neatly into the categories they had for him. He comes and he does things they don't expect. Wait a minute. He's come to preach judgment against us instead of the Romans. That's not what we were looking for. He's declaring judgment on our temple and our city when he should be gathering an army to march against Rome and push them back into the sea. That's what we want. This this is not what we expected. This is not what we were looking for. But the kind of conqueror they wanted is not the kind of conqueror that they needed. The kind of king that they wanted is not the king that they needed. This is why Palm Sunday remains relevant year after year is that we're like them. We want a Jesus who's nice to us. We want a Jesus who despises our enemies. And by the way, I mean, nice to us no matter what. Uh, He he despises our enemies, obviously, because he likes all the things we like and he hates all the things we hate. We want a Jesus who only helps us out in the ways we want to be helped. You know, if you could just give me perfect kids and a perfect wife and pay my bills and give me some extra free time every once in a while, I'm fine, that's all I need. That's the extent of what I want out of life, right? Right? Just give me a comfortable, easy life. We want a Jesus who is really on board with with the United States and supports our foreign policy no matter what. We want a Jesus who won't judge us, not us. Our sins aren't that bad. We want a savior on our terms, but it doesn't work that way. You don't go to a doctor with a broken arm and say, man, I'm in so much pain, do not touch this arm. My leg feels fine. If you could work on that, I'll be okay. Just not the arm. The arm really kills me right now. Don't touch it. We don't do that. We say, no, it's the arm that's, fix the arm. You don't go to an accountant and say, you know what? I'm in a mess. I've got money coming in and going out. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm making or how I'm spending it. Here, I've got this little book, this little savings account book from when I was eight years old. Can you take a look at this and tell me how I'm doing? No, you don't do that. You have to open up everything. You have to come clean on, on all your accounts, all your debts, and let them see all of it. You have to be open to being helped the way that you need to be helped. And it requires a lot more humility and a lot less arrogance and a lot less obstinence than we're willing to give. The people want a profit, but this is the kind of profit who tells them their city's under judgment. They want a Messiah, but but he's not a Greek war hero like they want, he is a sacrificial lamb who's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. They wanna be rescued from their worldly impurity. They wanna stop paying taxes to Rome, but Jesus is gonna rescue them from Satan and break his kingdom. Jesus is gonna destroy the power of death in the grave. He answers prayers that they don't even know they have yet. And, and things they cannot even conceive of that they need. They cannot fathom a salvation so deep or a mercy so wide that he's bringing to them. They want little surface stuff. They want, they want little things. And he's come to rescue them from the final uh, uh, evil, the final uh, big enemy, death. We are like them. We want a Jesus who will make us feel better about ourselves and confirm to us what we already are and that what we already are is fine. What we need, however, is a Jesus who will make a triumphal entry as king over our whole lives. That just as he came into Jerusalem as a conqueror, we need him to come conquer our lives, our homes, our work, our enjoyments, our church. Reign over all of it. Reign as king over all of it. And I ask you right now, what are you you holding back? What are you keeping back and saying, you know, reign over this stuff. I'm fine with that. I got this. And I'm holding on to it and I'm fine with this. I'm okay with the sickness and the corruption and the idolatry and the distress and the anxiety and the guilt that this is causing me. I'm okay with all that because I got it. I got it under control because, oh, it just hurts. It hurts to expose it. I'm going to keep it. You can't reign over this. Conquer everything else, fine. Do it, but but not this. What are you holding back? What are you saying? No, Lord, I don't need you to be king over this. I'm okay managing this on my own. I'm okay stumbling around in, in darkness. I'm okay being duff, de- deaf and dumb and, and lame. Um. We need him to come turn over all the tables and to run out all of the revolutionaries uh, in in our hearts and lives. The other thing here is that after he conquers us, we go out conquering with him as he does. We follow in his train as he goes out and it never quite looks the way anybody expects it. It looks like David dancing before an ark. It looks like a guy in a kilt playing bagpipes on the beach at Normandy. It looks like a teacher from Nazareth riding on a little donkey because our weapons aren't swords and cannons. Our weapons aren't politics or slick marketing. Our tools are word and water, bread and wine. Psalms, faithful worship, including little ones, faithful serving each other. And this is how the world is transformed by following this king who rides on a little donkey into a city and changes the world. Now, we're just on the start of this story. We're going to follow this king to the cross and to the grave and to Resurrection Sunday over the next few days. And we'll join him every step of the way. But we'll stop here for now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Jesus who comes to reign over us, even in ways that we don't expect. And we pray that certainly we would turn over to him and submit to him every dark, hidden, corrupt, idolatrous place of our hearts and lives. Convict us by your Holy Spirit to do this. And we do pray uh, for for his complete and total reign uh, over us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.